So Luke Fraser, awesome to talk with him about how to actually make democratized research happen in a big, old, tightly regulated enterprise company. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a more regulated industry than insurance. And so the fact that he was able to find ways to do user research uh, within Liberty Mutual is just really cool and a lot of great advice there, I think, for other people um, to, to leverage. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always inspired by people who can work within constraints to make things happen anyway. You sort of don't let the obvious excuses get in the way of doing what you really want to do. So Luke had tons of examples of being able to do that successfully that I think will be uh, inspiring and useful for lots of folks. Yeah. And if nothing else, check it out so you can hear how to get someone from legal to start attending daily standups. That's a fun <laughs> little uh, insight as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of my research practices are great, but there's also some some really other great ones out there that I don't know. I think what I would I am not lenient on is respecting the individual, um, respecting their time, and respecting their story. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is awkward silence. Silences. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. We are here with Luke Fraser. He's the founder and managing director at Paper Ventures. He has a ton of experience working in large Fortune 100 companies and tightly regulated environments, and we're going to draw on that expertise today to talk about how to really get folks comfortable with doing user research in those kinds of environments. So thanks so much, Luke, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me here. We got JH here too. I'm also here. A little under the weather. This is like my flu game. So it should be a should be a classic episode by those standards. <laughs> you might start to hallucinate by the end, but yeah. that'll be very entertaining for all of us. <laughs> so Luke, uh, thanks thanks for joining us. You have a lot of experience with with working in these kinds of environments that can be a little bit tricky to get people interested in what we all love, which is user research. Could you tell us a little bit about what makes it difficult for people to be comfortable with user research from your experience? Sure. Thanks again for having me on. So yeah, I um, had the, the opportunity to work within big firms, small firms, sometimes in, in the agency setting. have found in, in a lot of the, the bigger Fortune 100 companies, there's a lot of hesitancy early on in trying to execute some of the field user research that designers and researchers and PMs might want to do. And when I say that, it's in my head, things like, you know, we want to design for parents who are bringing home their first child or people who are doing home renovations, um, things like that. And so a, a researcher or designer's first, first thought might be, great, let's go into the home and and let's talk to them about home renovations in their kitchen that they're renovating or or as they're getting the, the baby's room ready, things like that. But a lot of large organizations just uh, might not have that in their DNA to quickly go out and recruit some folks and go talk to them. So three kind of barriers that that I've seen is is one, just um, lack of familiarity of, of how to execute their own research game. A lot of firms or a lot of large organizations have outsourced that to to research firms. And then two other concerns. One is harm to the employee or um, risk to the employee doing the research offsite. And then three, any liability to the company of, of putting their employees out there. Those are kind of the three main barriers that I've seen 
that have stopped large organizations from from actually executing and building their own internal research capability. Great. So let's let's dig into those uh, wherever you want to start. Which is the most common or the most difficult barrier to get over? Would you say? I think my experience is working in in large financial services organizations, hundred plus year old organizations. They just have a different type of legacy and, and different type of risk profile. So for me as an employee in the past, the harm to the employee and harm to the company are kind of the biggest barriers. But I actually think a lot of folks think that to execute research is is a lot bigger deal than it than it actually is. Um, like when you distill it down to the the most basic thing you're doing is you're you're having a conversation with another person. Things we do all the time. Early on, if folks are like, well, I don't even know how to, to, how to execute research or start talking to a user, I would just ask them to think of a potential user in their own friend or family network and go have an informal conversation with them and come back with the lens of how do we use that conversation to inform feature development or a new product and kind of show them that logistically it's it's not that difficult and it, it's as complicated or complex as, as you want to make it. It seems like the lack of familiarity and like not in the DNA, I can imagine kind of getting over, right? Like do some research, grab an analyst, you know, find some users who are willing to talk to you. Like it, those kind of feel like solvable with like little elbow grease and Googling and, and whatever it may be and some internal goodwill building. Getting over the hurdles around like the concerns about harm to employees or liability for the company for me as like a non-legal person feel like much harder barriers to, to get over. Cause like, I don't, I wouldn't know how to make those arguments to the people that care about that stuff to, to convince them that like, there's not a liability risk or, or things like that is how, how have you seen that navigated? Yeah. I think that the best way that I've seen that done is, is thinking about three things I'd say, uh, compromise, um, involvement, and then figuring out like what's your what's your SLA or what's your service level agreement in organizations where I've seen this happen we really tried to understand the concerns of of HR and legal and then almost just kind of like prototype together ways that we could achieve our research goals and they could achieve a level of comfort so for example early on in building a research capability one of the compromises that we made with these stakeholders was great we can recruit whomever we'd like but will always meet with them in a public space. So while the purist in me would have been like, well, we need to be in context. If the next best thing is meeting in the local library with them to, to have an early first conversation, like that's a win-win, I think. The second way that I think is super, super helpful here is is getting these folks in, in, our, in my former case, it was you know different types of counsel and human resources representatives, getting them involved in the research. So bringing them along to conversations, maybe at the local library or the, the Dunkin' Donuts for them to really understand like, oh, this really is just a conversation with somebody else. And that has helped with momentum because they can see that it's pretty low key. They can see when there's a product being developed as a result or a new feature set as a result, they get to see that it was informed by some of the research that they permitted. Get involved feels like just good advice always for user research, right? When you're working in organizations for people who are part of it and see the benefit of it and that it's not scary, whoever they might be are going to become champions of user research. Yeah. One of the, the best outcomes of some of this was one squad I was on. We were building an, a new adjacent insurance product and digital sales and claims platform to test it in the market. And we didn't fully 
tell our legal team that we were doing it initially. And when they found out, um, they didn't find out too late, but when they found out, we got to this awesome agreement that one of their team members would be on our scrum team. And so every single morning we all, you know, did our standups and we had cards on the board for legal as well as for you know, design and development and things like that. And it was a wonderful way to have, I guess, a stakeholder that you traditionally wouldn't you know, have on your, mm-hmm. on your product team to be on there. You know, certainly there were trade-offs there, but we were just able to understand each other so much better. And, and we like to talk a lot about that each member on the team had a, had a superpower that we didn't want to block as another teammate. And so we really were allowed like counsel to, to do their thing and make sure we were operating legally within the States we were launching and then let the PMs do their thing as well. And some of the best moments or when, you know, this particular individual on the, on the squad would be a huge advocate in executive team meetings because, because they were on early research mm-hmm. and, and they right. could stand up for you know, Susie from Medford or something like that. That's really cool. Now I'm just like fascinated by what sort of uh, stand up updates the, uh, the council person was giving, but uh, probably don't need to go down that tangent. <laughs> Lots of acronyms, GDPR compliance. Um, I also love when you talked about how you kind of figured out how you're going to make this happen. This happens a lot where you're basically user researching your own team, right? You're doing interviews, talking to people, trying to understand what they really care about, where their objections might be. I think you said you prototyped, right? right. Possible ways of making this happen. And then I'm sure you iterated as you have this council on your, so it's, I think that's so interesting bringing those same kind of skills into your internal teams and figuring out how to function effectively. Right. Yeah. That's a good call out. I think what I'd add to that too is, is reminding your internal teams that the decision we make today is, it can be valid for, for a week or two, and then we can revisit it. Mm -hmm. And just like this, this itself is an experiment and we'll keep you, keep you involved in all of the, the data and output and we can, we can all iterate accordingly. Yeah. So, so harm, harming people <laughs> is not so good. Um, yep. No one wants to do that. And you've got legal and HR kind of stakeholders mm-hmm. in that. You, you talked a little bit about how, how legal has gotten involved. What about on the HR side? Yeah. Similarly, we would bring HR legal and then in the kind of financial services and insurance world, there's um, also product development folks that are building the financial instruments that support the experiences, also called product management, which can make it sometimes confusing in, in a large company. And we would identify those folks early on, get them on the project team early on and and really bring them out with us. And what was really cool is that, you know, in in trying to understand the broad organization and, and everyone's goals, we would identify ways that we could help them in a future project, you know, that team in particular was focused on new product and service innovation. And sometimes that meant uh, internal innovation. And so that was a really cool kind of unplanned research project as well. But, you know, nothing crazy, but just the reminder that getting everyone involved as early as possible to prevent surprises and unexpected news to people is just always a, a good idea, especially if it's a new practice. The advice and the tips you've shared about like how to navigate this all make a ton of sense to me. I guess the question I have is when I hear, you know, like legal and I hear HR, I guess probably hopefully incorrectly, but like, I assume that means like stuff's going to take a while. Was this a process that once you got it rolling, like took a long time to get some of these experiments out or by pulling people in early and getting them on the team, were you all able to actually make some pretty like rapid progress and and figure this stuff out? 
Yeah, I'd say on the initially, after we tried to understand the barriers and, and some of the concerns from the, the stakeholders, we came up with our own approach and service level agreements and shared them with those folks and and made it as, hey, here's how here's how we see we're going to approach this. And if you see huge uh, red flags, please stop us. So almost a, an insurance, you'd call it a desk filing, but you know, here's what we're doing and we're going to move forward with this unless unless there's a big issue. On the second piece, I think having counsel as part of our, like on our scrum board was incredibly helpful in terms of uh, timing because you didn't just shoot an email into the abyss and then hope that it, hope that it turned around. You saw that there was a a story for someone and that was priority and that was taking, you know, X amount of time. And if it was going to be delayed, that's totally fine, but we were really super lucky to get that visibility and those updates. I'd also say that we, through our, through our partnership with legal, I learned the right questions to ask of when a decision had to do with legality, whether it had to do with internal comfort. And then third to ask, what is the kind of expected value of taking this risk? Um, especially when we're working with such small sample sizes, oftentimes we would work together to just really understand like how big is this risk? What's the chance that it happens? And then as the business, are we able to accept that risk and move forward? Yeah, that we hear that in, in organizations of of different sizes a lot, right? The what you're going to learn what from talking to five people, and we're going to spend what on on that. And is when you talk about lack of familiarity, right? Part of that is we don't know how to do this. We've outsourced that, and part of it is we don't know why mm-hmm. we should do that or if we should do that. All right, a quick awkward interruption here. It's fun to talk about user research, but you know what's really fun is doing user research, and we want to help you with that. We want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free. We all know we should be talking to users more. So we went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out. And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please. Have you had success with selling the value of doing uh, user research, qualitative research in the first place within these organizations? Yeah, and you know, I think I think a lot can be said up front, and any team should really try to to make their case of you know here's the approach we're taking. Here's here are other organizations that leverage this. It's best practice to do these types of things, but nothing is a replacement for your either research chair or your opportunity share to really drive home that, you know, Aaron, you mentioned five people. And I, I think all of us are probably agreeing on this call that there, there's almost an infinite amount of, of salient stories and anecdotes and quotes and data to gather from talking to five people. And it's on the research team and the, the, the PM or whoever's the team synthesizing all this to, to really prove that it's valuable throughout the project. So one thing that that we kind of built into our practice, and we were doing a lot of um, early stage product ideation and, and testing. And so we would maybe do a few weeks of research and then we would make sure that we had a research share that was in person and we would block off like two or three hours for it. And we tried really hard not to make it like a Skype meeting. 
because what we really wanted to do is immerse the group, the, the stakeholder group as much as possible and increase the information saturation of everyone in that room and have the, the real time to say, you know, one of the themes that we came across was, was XYZ and, and meet Aaron. Aaron is a small business owner in downtown Boston and share an anecdote about Aaron. And oftentimes it took until that output share for folks to say like, oh, I get this and I get why it gives you a different output than sampling 500 people mm -hmm. online. Yeah, yeah, totally. What what about the dollars and cents piece of it, right? We've seen studies that say, right, for every dollar invested in UX, you get back two to $100 or things like that. Is that a convincing argument for folks you've worked with? I can't say I've ever used that. What I have done, which is probably... I guess it's less out, outcome oriented, but say, so this research is probably going to happen um, <laughs> in some capacity. Right. The traditional way of doing it is going to take you four times longer and probably be four times more expensive. And hmm. uh, what I can deliver is I can speak to the same amount of people. I can do it in you know a quarter of the time and quarter of the budget. That's what I think, um, just in my experience of working with different recruitment firms and their minimums and their timelines and turnarounds. And, and they can do great work as well, depending on the, the project need. But I think that recruiting through your own networks, peer networks, your employee networks, Facebook, Craigslist, user interviews, and doing your own logistics. I think it's lean. It's mean. It gets your whole team just so much closer to it. Yeah. So I would just make a cost uh, argument to that. No, it's interesting. I was thinking of it coming from the other way. Should we invest in this? But you're coming at it, right? Of course, from we already have these big budgets for research and we've been doing it this slower, faster, fatter way. And we can actually uh, get the same result uh, faster, better, cheaper. So yeah, I, th cool. I think where where I've had, I've received questions of value is great. We believe in the research that has been done. How do we know this is valid beyond the 12 people you spoke with. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's where it's fair to, to try to pull in a, a larger quant survey, but even that can be done fairly quickly and, and fairly cheaply. To jump back to something you shared a little earlier about um, yeah. you know, the expected risk versus the expected value, I was wondering, did any of the risks like, come to fruition? So it seems like you as a team were pretty good about you know, what could go wrong in a situation and how to mitigate, like meet in a public place and things like that. Were there any instances where some of those risks actually came to the surface and you guys had to navigate around that? Um, not in my experience so far. What we always did was we always screened individuals in, on a phone call at first. And, you know, that's helpful for a number of reasons. Uh, one, to see if they fit the qualifications that they that they indicate. Two, to understand if they'll be a great participant if they have a lot to say on a, on a certain subject. And then third, finally, to, to just do our best with intuition on if their intentions are sound. And so that tends to be a good screen. And if, if any, if at any point our gut said that it wasn't a good idea, we didn't, we didn't go do it. I think the only thing that like, I'm lucky, but I think the only negative outcomes, which I think every researcher has come across is just like, Oh, this wasn't the best interview we've ever had. Or, oh, we made a recruitment mistake here, but luckily haven't uh, haven't had anything else. I think if we're honest with our intentions for the research, most folks are just super willing to help and kind of. 
I've found that user research just reminds me of the good in, in humanity almost. Um, I'm sure there are researchers who, who say the exact opposite. <laughs> Not a lot we talk to, but I guess they don't feel like joining the podcast so much. <laughs> yeah, I, I was talking to someone this morning about a previous project and they, they asked, you know, why do people agree to talk to you? And, you know, there's compensation, but I actually, I think the best participants, you know, the compensation is, is nice. And I think people should be compensated for their time, but they're people who, who either have a pain or have an excitement that means so much to them that they, they want to share. And oftentimes researchers are in, are in organizations that are trying to, to figure out the best ways to help them. And so if that's the mm -hmm. true purpose, then I think most people want to be helped and most people want to share their story. So usually the intentions are good, but that might be some rose-colored glasses on my part. Yeah, we, we did a whole episode on that. We talked to a bunch of participants and asked right. them, you know, why do you participate? And yeah, money is, or, or compensation, right? Some mm -hmm. folks do other kinds of, of thank yous, but it's got to be part of it to compensate for the time. But really the emotional drivers are um, like what you said, but I want to be heard. You know, my, I want someone to care about my opinion, wanting to learn about companies and their innovation. Right. right? Yeah. So some, some cool motivations yeah. that drive interesting conversations. I agree there. An objection that, that I've heard a lot executives at companies who are, who are listening to research shares there, uh, there sometimes is skepticism about, you know, who would respond on Craigslist to, to do this or, mm -hmm who are, are these serial, are these serial interviewees type right. things? Um, so there's definitely some skepticism about, about that out there. You mentioned uh, getting this started in, in one of your roles on kind of like within your team for the project you were working on. Is that something that once it got started and, and once you had some success there that like that broke down the barrier and like propagated to other teams in the organization or did it kind of stay local to the way that your squad and, and group worked? I'm not sure if it spread throughout the entire organization, um, but it, it definitely was something that our teams within our division continued to do and could do without uh, significant pushback, which was which was really great. What was great at you know it was a really big company, so there were a lot of different teams doing these things. What was great is is once all of these teams gotten in touch with each other to to say, oh, you're using user interviews to recruit people. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and then one team would say, well, we have this space that we don't use. If you want to use that for your, you know, dinner conversations. Um, and so I think once teams got to see that certain tactics were, were successful, uh, then they could adopt them or it was just easier for them to make the case. Um, and I think, uh, one of the, one of the core innovation teams in the innovation labs there did a really good job eventually of, um, of trying to at least have tabs on best practices that were being successful across the org and just making them known so that folks could share them. Another thing that I just brought this up, oftentimes we got pushed back on bringing cash to interviews as well. So like one thing we could share with folks that was really easy was, you know, go buy Visa gift cards and you won't run into that barrier. But yeah, I don't know if it officially spread like that, but there were a lot of people doing really good things and at least we could contribute some things to to the large organization. That's awesome. What What's the pushback around cash? I don't know if it was fear that we would become theft targets i i don't know um i don't know i'm a pretty laissez like laissez-faire person like i 
I have, have no problem like going to interview someone in their home. Um, <laughs> but my risk, I guess my risk tolerance is very different. But yeah, we would uh, buy the number of Visa gift cards we needed and activate them and and uh, and hand those out. You know, it's a lot easier with user reviews. <laughs> I know. I'm a, <laughs> Amazon I'm gift a believer cards. in the platform. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I just had to, had to slide that plug in there. So compromise. You talked about compromise. I think, you know, there's a lot to unpack there in terms of in any kind of negotiation or, or compromise situation. And now you're negotiating with lawyers, mm. right? So God bless. How do you... Right? They were fantastic. <laughs> Good at it. Um, you talked about, well, like, oh, we want to go into people's homes. And now, of course, like we're imagining like worst case scenario, like silence of the lambs. I don't know, like something terrible is going to happen when you go in this person's home. But most mm-hmm. people are nice and and not crazy. So in that, in that case, you... Uh, compromise to going to a public space. How have you worked through various compromises that you've made and where to draw the line or where to push more or where, no, this is really important to the research. And if we don't do it this way, why do we bother? You know, have you learned anything through the various compromises that you've made over the years? Yeah. I've learned to be as clear as possible on my vision of the trade-offs of making certain choices. You know, one, for example, is if, especially in like a a client uh, setting where you want to have uh, a one-on-one conversation and the client team wants to be there. And that might be five of them. We're like, I don't think a six V one conversation is a, is a productive environment for anyone, um, right. but it keeps the client informed. You know, I will offer my belief of a best practice, but ultimately, you know, if there's a significant amount of pushback, I'm happy to, to experiment with a couple conversations in certain ways, um, knowing that I think some of my research practices are great, but there's also some some really other great ones out there that I don't know. I think what I would I am not lenient on is respecting the individual, um, respecting their time, and respecting their story. So making sure that you know we are incredibly transparent and honest about our intent and about who we are. And then once we have their conversation or have their, have their story or uh, have all of their learnings that we stay true to that story. And then uh, as whatever agreement we came to, we respect, you know, confidentiality, you know, legally we have to, if there are certain HIPAA uh, things involved there too. So I I guess I, if if I feel like anything is, is not respecting our participant, that's where I'd put my foot down, but otherwise I'll, you know, give my strong opinion and, Mm -hmm and see where it goes. That's another, that's another thing from a a regulated industry. We've done a lot in the health and wellness space. And so making sure that we, if we're talking about uh, health experience or health history, um, that we are making sure that we're abiding by all HIPAA requirements with that data and that data storage and confidentiality. So if anyone's working in a, an industry where they might touch that, that's definitely a point where I would uh, check in with counsel on that just to make sure. I'd also double check what your participant agreements look like to make sure that like, if you are using someone's photo that you've taken, that the language is in there and that they get to see that contract bef- at least 24 hours before uh, you have the interview with them just as a matter of, of respect. Mm-hmm. What, what did we not ask you, Luke? What else should we know? Hmm. I would plug user interviews. 
I do. I do to everyone. What's what's your uh, referral bonus here, GH? Uh, the one is like do your own risk assessment of the permission versus forgiveness balance, and in many organizations, folks might folks might find that just going out and doing it is the best path for them. Can't can't assess that from afar. Uh, the second I'd say is um, sometimes having an outside catalyst is helpful here. So um, I've been in organizations where because we had done a small engagement with an outside design firm, their output was fantastic. And we were able to point to that and say, this is the process that they went through and we want to, we want to emulate that. Um, so, you know, as mm-hmm. if there's many cases where an outside catalyst is helpful, but sometimes that's useful. And then the last one is uh, I would advocate that everyone on the product or project team play a role in recruitment at some point. Um, That's just like a principle that I have. Maybe you don't do it forever, but the quality of your research is largely dependent on the quality of your recruiting. And so just understanding what matters, what doesn't matter, logistics of all that, I think is is super useful. And I actually uh, 90% of the time like won't not be the recruiter for for my projects that I do um, just because I, I love it but I also think like mm. that's the a lot of work is done in the recruitment mm. process for sure mm. <laughs> you love recruiting I think you might be the first person who has said that um I don't know if I said love <laughs> uh but I definitely appreciate it and um know that uh time is only your friend in recruitment why don't you do it so because it because of the time because your time is better spent doing other things or Oh, no, no. I only, I, I love, hmm, I said love. Uh, I will always be, I, I will always be involved in recruitment uh-huh. because I think it's so, I think it's so important. And I think, um, especially if you're recruiting for a, a difficult population or a specific population, um, t- having time on your side is, is only a good mm-hmm. thing. Um, because you never know in that last, I, I always would tell my advice to my teams is always, if you have to decide between getting a recruiting post up on like Friday or Monday, like do whatever you can to get it up on Friday before you leave. Because those two days yeah. of just letting it sit out there is just, makes sense. is, is wonderful. On the, uh, on the first one you mentioned about like permission versus forgiveness. I have this like fake fictional thing in my head where a product manager or a designer at a large organization, you know, goes off and does research that wasn't fully sanctioned. And then they get fired for it. And then I just see like on medium, a headline, right? Of like, I got fired for doing user research and it's just like super viral all over design Twitter. Yeah. And this person has a million new offers to, to choose from. And I think, I think in a lot of cases that person would end up okay, but this is all totally f- fictionalized in my head, but I think that's how it would go. <laughs> Need a good murder. <laughs> I, I think once I've gotten advice of, of, just make sure whatever you're doing isn't going <laughs> to land on the front page of the Boston Globe tomorrow. <laughs> that was that's like career advice I got once. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>